Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, April 4th, 2022. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim Hill talks about Love Bug Day at Disneyland to celebrate the movie Herbie the Love Bug. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that all national anthems are really country music. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I am doing well, Lent. Uh, speaking of, of country music, you are aware of the, the story that if you the Beatles album, Rubber Soul, if you play it backwards, you, you get the hidden message. Paul is dead. Paul's Paul dead. is dead. Yeah. There we go. Do you know about the hidden message if you play a country album backwards? No. You get your car back. You get your girl back. You get your dog back. <laughs> you get out of jail. <laughs> there we go. That's funny. I'm sorry, not my joke, but I always, I always like that one. Oh, that's great. That's funny. Yeah. All right, let's Jim. Let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Bill Devine, Steve Weedend, and Jay Byrne, and longtime subscribers Karen Pearsall, Ken Ballard, and Carl Gutag. Jim, these are the folks responsible for feeding all the guests that show up for the Hoopty Doo review over at Fort Wilderness. They say that frying 900 pounds of chicken is the hard part because now they're using the old Fort Wilderness Railroad to mash the 400 pounds of potatoes they serve every night. True story. I thought I got a hint of diesel, diesel. in there. <laughs> just a touch of locomotive in with the, with the spuds. Just a soupçon. <laughs> you know, it's just sort of like, so, okay. <laughs> hint of axle grease here? What is this? There this we is, go. Oh, this is tasty. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> All right, folks, let's do the news. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. So a couple of quick reminders. We're doing our first ever Disney Dish cruise, September 23rd to the 26th of this year. I believe that is sold out, but check uh, storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish to be sure. Also, Jim, you and I are doing the second annual Gingerbread Challenge in Walt Disney World. It's Friday, December 2nd, uh, and that weekend, we have a couple of really interesting events lined up there, including a private thing at La Cava. More details on that shortly. And then we're still looking at March 30th to April 1st of 2023 for a group cruise on the Star Cruiser Halcyon. So that's a Thursday check-in and a Saturday check-out. So almost exactly one year from uh, today. And uh, again, we're checking out somehow appropriately on April Fool's Day. And speaking of events, Jim, it looks like there's a Walt Disney World media event planned for May 4th through the 6th of 2022. This has got to be for Guardians of the Galaxy, right? That's my understanding. Yeah. Supposedly, they are still locked in on the official Memorial Day opening. Mm -hmm. So looks like the weeks directly following the press event will be previews. annual pass holders, yeah. previews, DBC, cast member previews, previews yeah. that sort of stuff. So Yeah, so I heard uh, uh, cast members may or may not come before the press event. So May 4th, 5th, and 6th is the press event. I know that they've invited large market media, small market media, and travel agencies um, already. I think May 7th will be another preview event for some other lucky Walt Disney World folks. And then I think mm -hmm. after that, it'll be DBC, APs, and stuff like that. Makes sense. Makes sense. Also, while we're at uh, Epcot, it looks like cultural representatives are returning to Epcot later this summer. That is definitely good news. Yeah, You want your croissants handed to you by people who speak French natively. It makes them taste better. That's my opinion anyway. <laughs> I, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Um, also, Jim, did you see uh, that Disney added a disclaimer to Genie Plus purchases saying, quote, on average, guests can enter two to three attractions or experiences per day 
using the lightning lane entrance if the first selection is made early in the day. <laughs> so, so we have no in writing that this is uh, this is just paid fast pass, right? <laughs> yeah, and you know that last parenthetical there gave the first selection made early in the day. Yeah, how many people bought into the Genie Plus system, assuming they'd be able to waltz right into things and. It did not work out that way, which led to some rather loud, angry conversation to guest relations. So, yeah, my guess is this is either this is either guest relations saying, "For the love of God, please let people yeah. know what can they expect," or it's the legal team saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, you know what may be a great idea here?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. You of all people know that you know the problem with so many of the the Disney attractions is they will over the course of the day, you know, it's a one-on-one it's a, you know, uh, Oh, you mentioned this. <laughs> so I've been doing some analysis, Jim. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So one of the problems with uh, genie plus and with individual lightning lane, especially mm-hmm. in Epcot is that the rides are so unreliable that it's causing backups, not only on those attractions which are involved in Genie Plus and individual lightning lane, but of course there's a cascading effect because once a ride goes down, people go somewhere else, right? So just mm-hmm. just to give you an example, I've looked at um, downtime per day over the last couple of weeks in minutes for some of the major attractions in Epcot and then um, around the park. And this is one of the reasons why I did that. So Remy's Ratatouille Adventure, which opened last year in Epcot, is averaging, Jim, in an hour and a half of downtime per day. So you think about that. I mean, the park's open for 12 hours, right? Right. And 90 minutes of it are spent offline, right? Mm -hmm. So that's 13% of the day is just offline. And the problem with that is, you know, once Remy's offline, people will walk to the next closest kid-friendly ride in World Showcase, which is Frozen Ever After. But that's not great because while Remy is down 90 minutes, 91 minutes a day, Frozen Ever After is down 82 minutes a day. Uh, (laughs) what do you do right yeah oh okay in contrast this makes test track which is only down gym 58 Mm -hmm. minutes a day on average uh look like the most reliable thing in the park wow okay but the winner jim the winner across uh the parks uh Mm -hmm. has to be the studios where rise of the resistance is averaging averaging gym not this is not the max averages Mm -hmm. an hour and 47 minutes a day of downtime over the last two weeks, nearly two hours of downtime a day for Rise of the Resistance. And that's on top of Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, which averages 45 minutes a day almost in, okay. in terms of downtime. So between those two rides, you're mm-hmm. looking at just under 150 minutes, two and a half hours a day of downtime in just those two rides. Remy, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, and likewise Rise of the Resistance are those trackless rides. Yeah. Which can get weirdly glitchy, but they're also they're also big budget things. I mean, yeah. I mean, not for nothing, but Disney spent a billion dollars on Galaxy's Edge. They did. They uh, did. A billion dollars should buy you a ride that is uh, is not down thirteen uh, percent of the day. Yeah. Well. Same thing with Remy. I mean, Remy's a clone. Why is it down an hour and a half a day? That's hard to explain when you think about Rise of the Resistance, where you have so many moving parts. Whereas Rise of the Resistance, I can squint my eyes and accept yep. Rise of the Resistance. It's the best ride they've they've done in decades. It is, mm-hmm. to your point, insanely complicated. Like I could, I could accept that if I had to, right? But mm-hmm. with everything else, like if that was the one ride. And you'd be like, well, you know, you know, mm-hmm. yes, my, you know, my husband doesn't have teeth or anything, but I love him anyway. And he listens to mm-hmm. terrible music, but he's still okay. my husband, right? I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm there with that, right? Okay. But 
Jeez, I don't know, man. That's that's a lot of downtime. You're not wrong. The uh, and the reason Jim why I mentioned this is thanks to our friends in Walt Disney Activationeering, because I'm going to stop calling them Imagineers now. But thanks to okay. our friends in Walt Disney Activationeering, um, mm-hmm. we now have some idea of the testing schedule for Guardians of the Galaxy and how well oh, it's no. doing. Um, okay. So it looks like this is interesting. Um, one of the things I had, I had uh, looked at prior to this mm-hmm. was if you follow certain members of Activationeering on social media, you can figure out pretty much the testing schedule for Guardians of the Galaxy by looking at where these people are when they post on social media. So it turns out, um, and this is just a guess, I could be wrong. Uh, it looks like they don't test Guardians of the Galaxy on Fridays. So, and by testing, I mean like they're running the, the ride all day, simulating mm-hmm. as if people were actually on the ride. Because at this point, they should be doing that. You know, this is the burn-in period. Mm-hmm. Right? But it looks like Fridays uh, is the date on which uh, they don't do the testing. It looks like on Saturday. So it looks like Friday, they actually do whatever adjustments they need to be doing. And then Mm -hmm. on Saturday, they come in and test whatever changes they made on Friday. And I know that because the downtime that Mm -hmm. we're seeing on Saturdays is significantly higher. So if you look at the downtime and you exclude the Saturdays on which, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess, Disney's testing all of the stuff that they made changes to on the Friday, right? Mm -hmm. It turns out that Guardians of the Galaxy right now is actually more reliable than Rise of the Resistance and almost as reliable as Remy's Ratatouille Adventure. And the reason why I was interested in this is because I asked our friends at um, Walt Disney Activationeering Mm -hmm. um, whether uh, Guardians would open with um, boarding groups. Uh, And so a couple of people passed on this particular piece of information and said, what do you think? And so my 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 <laughs> <laughs> wow okay you know and mm-hmm. and and so my my guess is at this point it probably will at least for a couple of weeks um, mm-hmm. open up with boarding groups because it's it's averaging just over ninety ish minutes a day of downtime again excluding all of the days in which it uh, uh, the the testing just happens so yeah I think I think it'll open but uh, but I'd be surprised if it doesn't. Uh, um, go to individual lightning lane right after that. Mm-hmm. Some other interesting news I learned from our friends over at Activationeering. Did you know, Jim, that, well, you know, of course, that there are two parts to Princess Fairy Tale Hall at the Magic Kingdom, right? There's princess greetings on, on, on either side of Princess Fairy Tale Hall, right? Mm-hmm. Did you know internally that they refer to one side as the blue side and the other side as the pink side? Isn't that supposed to be tied to the whole make it blue, make it pink thing from Sleeping Beauty? No idea. No idea what you're talking about there, Jim. Okay. (laughs) Is that really what it is? I want to say it's a a Flora and a Meriwether fight over what color Princess Rose dress should be. Make it blue, make it pink, make it blue, make it pink. Oh, that makes way more sense. Because my my question back to our friends at Activation Hearing was, Mm -hmm. okay, who's blue and who's pink? There we go. So we'll uh, hopefully we'll have this mystery cleared up by the next uh, show, and then we'll uh, we'll reveal the answer then. Okay. Finally, uh, Jim, it looks like the new ice cream place, Salt and Straw, is looking to open shortly in Disney Springs. Our friend of the podcast, Jonathan Rubenstein, wrote in last week to say that he has now sampled some new Salt and Straw flavors, and that Walt Disney World is in for a real treat. So I am super excited to see this happen. Uh, that should be like anytime in the next couple of weeks. Cool, cool. Any idea where Salt and Straw is going? In I Disney believe Springs? it's uh, it's on the west side, over by in the Haleo area. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. okay. Cool, cool. Yeah, super excited for that. All right, Jim. We uh, we uh, got a bunch of surveys from people, mm-hmm. uh, so I want to go over those and also some listener questions if we have 
time. I'm going to save the long survey for later. Um, let's start with this one. So uh, our friend Andrea got a Genie Plus survey from Walt Disney World. And she writes in and says, I rated it as poor. And then it asked me to choose reasons why we rated Genie Plus poor. And the list seemed very reflective of feedback they've already received. It was an extensive list of reasons not to like Genie Plus, all of which were true. <laughs> and I love that line. Oh. <laughs> like, you know, I can agree. Yeah, here's, a, here's a list of all the things that Disney said people don't like about Genie. And yeah, I can agree with mm-hmm. all of them. It's fantastic. Oh, wow. <laughs> things like not enough inventory, technical mm-hmm. glitches in the app. I couldn't plan ahead what I wanted to do with my day, and I had to keep checking my phone throughout the day, plus too expensive. Um, it also asked whether I planned to use Genie, Genie Plus, and an individual lightning lane on future visits. So uh, it looks like uh, Disney's hearing the feedback, Jim. They're trying to figure out now, uh, I guess, how to do damage control on it? Yeah. What's been fascinating just this past three weeks or so is... Disney's battles with the state of Florida, but <laughs> we're going to talk about that next week. But yeah, virtually every article, uh, in addition to talking about you know Mr. Chapek <laughs> tussling with with Governor DeSantis, disgruntled customers, in, yeah. yes, works in a mention of to the effect of you know rising prices at the parks, new admission material materials, and and it's just sort of like Disney can't escape this story. Oh, yeah. oh no, yeah. I mean, it's like the uh, the White Star Line when they launched the, the next ship after the Titanic and the press release was like, yeah, but but remember the time? But what about yeah. – <laughs> like, no, no, no. We're not talking about that anymore. We're on to the new thing. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. All right. Our friend uh, Nicholas sent in a Disneyland Magic Key survey. And Jim, I want to get your input on this one question that I haven't seen before. And I want mm-hmm. your take on what the possible meaning might be for it. Okay. So Nicholas's survey included this question. If the Magic Key program had not been an available option, how many times would you visit the Disneyland Resort over the course of a year? If you're unsure, please enter your best guess. So the, and it, there's a two-parter here. How many trips would you take and the number of days per trip? So why would they want to know whether you'd still come to Disneyland? And if so, how often and for how many days? You remember, they had this previous pattern established to the effect mm-hmm. of they wanted the locals mm-hmm. to come twice a year. They wanted them to come during the summer mm-hmm. and they wanted them to come during the holiday period. Yep. And now with all of the, this annual pass holder program coupled with the fact that you need the reservations to get into the park and that sort of thing. Oh yeah. That's broken. Yeah. Cause you can't make reservations, right? There's some days and we've seen the lawsuits, right? There's some days where you just can't get in, even if you've got the, the non blackout date ticket. Yeah, and and there's a, a lot of people at Disneyland who are like, "Don't panic, you know. Remember, we're still coming out of the pandemic. We're still yeah. ramping up." But I'm told retail is off, food sales are off. A lot of the revenue streams that the company had always counted on yeah. aren't where they're supposed to be. And get, the problem is, you can't point to the pandemic anymore. Well, no doubts, yeah. Did you, were you the one that told me, because you mentioned the food sales, were you the one that mm-hmm. told me that kitchen cook staffing is at 40% of pre-pandemic levels? If that. Yeah. And do you see that Disney's offering now, like, was it $4,000 signing bonuses if you can boil water? Like, uh, honest honest to God, like, if I if I was coming out of school right now, I would, I would mm-hmm. do a six-month culinary career and just take the bonus. It's such a strange situation because Disney finds itself competing against Amazon. Yeah, for bus drivers, yeah, and for things yeah. like that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, it, and it's just one of these things where it's like the forces in the marketplace have changed so 
dramatically just over the last two and three uh, yeah. years that Disney is genuinely struggling to, you know, what's it going to take to get people to come through the door? And yeah. I mean, this is another reason why you are seeing increasing leaning toward automation or can we put that in an app? Because that means we don't have to hire a person or persons. Yeah. Uh, cooking food though is, uh, is it going to be automated anytime soon? And that's by itself as a, is it not only a huge investment, but it mm. kind of restricts the number of things that you can cook. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Cause you, you and I could figure out how to cook a, mm. a hamburger after learning how to cook an omelet, but to teach mm. a robot to do that, is decidedly more difficult. I agree. I agree. But not to say that there aren't people out there trying that very same oh, yeah. thing. You know? Yeah, no, no doubt. Yeah. So. Yeah. By the way, did you see uh, Universal just raised its uh, entry-level wages for um, for cast members to up to $20 an hour? That tells you quite a bit yeah. about the Orlando job market. All right. Uh, before we do the last survey, a couple of quick listener questions. This is one mm -hmm. from the fabulous Mrs. Shannon Ford. By the way, you should mm -hmm. check out her YouTube channel. That's Shannon Ford. Uh, and Shannon writes in with this. Uh, my family and I typically travel to Walt Disney World the first week of December, so 12-4 to 12-11 this year. However, my son is now in school, so that means taking him out for a week. We noticed that this upcoming school year, his winter break includes the first week of January. So we're thinking about moving our trip to January 1st to January 8th instead. I know the beginning of January tends to be slower. However, because other school districts may have a similar schedule, I'm thinking that may not be the case in 2023. The Touring Plans crowd calendar shows mostly sevens in January. I know the tail end of the week is the marathon, but do you have any thoughts? Yeah, so this is interesting because uh, January 1st is a Sunday. So the legal holiday in 2023 will be January 2nd, which is the Monday. But then Orange County schools also have off January 3rd as a teacher workday. So that means the only day that week where there's not either a school holiday or a marathon is January 4th, but that's the day probably uh, everyone's flying in for the marathon. There you go. And then you've got uh, that. So yeah, I think it's going to be fairly busy. Um, mm -hmm. The only thing really we don't know this far out is about mm -hmm. you know, how the flu or COVID numbers are going to look you know, next winter. Um, mm -hmm. And that'd be my only big concern right, right now. But assuming you know things stay as good as they are now, yeah, I would mm -hmm. expect that first week of January to be m much busier than average. No. Sorry, Shannon. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. Them's the breaks. Have you, have you thought about truancy? There we go. <laughs> exactly. All right. Here's a one from Dan Heaton. Great job on the latest episode on the modern classics from Disney. Uh, Len mentioned Agent P's World Showcase Adventure, which was actually the second iteration of that interactive game in World Showcase. Yes, uh, Dan, you, Pat O'Day, and approximately 11 billion other people pointed that out. The first was Kim Possible, which really changed the landscape. I'm running because I thought you might be interested in the podcast interview that I just released with Jonathan Ackley, the creator of those experiences, plus Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom, the Minihune Adventure Trail over in Alani, and the Play Disney Parks app uh, and a Pirate's Adventure. So that's uh, tomorrowsociety.com slash Jonathan-Ackley-podcast if you're interested. Dan's great. It, uh, I've done his podcast a few times, and every time you know, Dan sends out a list of you know, questions he's going to ask. It feels like, you know, a graduate school syllabus. Like, Cause he'll, he'll, he'll ask you like, Hey, we want to talk about like, he, one time we want to talk about like the, your five favorite Disney theme park books. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Oh my God, it's like picking your five, you know, your five favorite children. Mm -hmm. And so I had to go back and reread the books and then figure out like, do a critical analysis on them and figure out like why I like these books versus, you know, whatever was sixth on my list. It wasn't going to get mentioned. And I ended up doing like, seven pages of notes on five books and it, and it went by in like an hour and a half. It was like, it was, 
get out. Yeah. But, but again, I, I appreciate you do your homework. Yeah, yeah. Now, Din, Din does a very good uh, detailed podcast. You should get, go yeah. listen. Tomorrowsociety.com. Mm-hmm. All right. Also, same, uh, same thing uh, from Tom Barnes. I'm not sure which of the Disney modern classics I'd remove from your list to make room for my favorite ride, but it should get an honorable mention. The ride I'm referring to is Toy Story Midway Mania. From the over-the-top queue to the actual riding game, it's an absolute classic of the modern era. It makes great use of the screens and 3D glasses, uh, even some 4D effects if you count the air in your face. It's very rewritable, especially since it's a competition, and it's fun for the whole family. While there are a lot of great attractions at Hollywood Studios, this is the one must-do ride for me. Mm-hmm. So I consider this on my list, Jim. What about you? I was going to use it to talk about how I've noticed that lately the Imagineers do this thing where they have one really great AA figure in an attraction and that's yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Like the Navi River Adventure or uh, Expedition Everest when the Yeti was working. Summer of the Yeti. <laughs> Summer of the Yeti. There we go. Uh, <laughs> Toy Story Midway Mania has uh, Mr. Potato Head, which you know I love. Yeah. I guess part of the problem for me is that I find that the competition aspect of the attraction actually pulls me out of the ride. I am suddenly so competitive with who I'm traveling with. It's kind of like Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spin. You know, you're not enjoying the environment. You're looking for little X's to hit with your laser. <laughs> but he's not wrong about the rewritability. It's true. It's true. Yeah. The uh, the thing that I always remember about Toy Story Midway Mini is going on it with my family because mm-hmm. like, I'm competitive. And I'll mm-hmm. tell people that my twin sister, Linda, is the most competitive person I've ever met. She's the one who once coined the first, like we were, one time we were in Epcot, like we were younger and it was pouring down rain and we we're like, ah, you know, I don't know if we should, should we go home or whatever? And she looked at me with like dead eyes mm-hmm. and said, rain calls the weak from the herd. all right (laughs) wow (laughs) linda's on a different level than the rest of us so that's why i can't i can't go on these rides with her right Mm because we'll be slapping each other like this as soon as your hand goes towards like the spinning thing the Mm -hmm. spinning lever on on buzz lightyear the other person will just slap it you know (sighs) and then you come out and you're all it's just it's not a it's not a it's not a family bonding moment for us but okay, I, I see your point. It is a great ride, Tom. It's definitely my top ten. Uh, okay. I don't know that I would put it fifth, but yeah. Hmm. All right. So uh, here's another email from uh, from Pat O'Day, and again, approximately eleven billion other people. Uh, hmm. I can't believe neither of you had Radiator Springs Racers on your list. I'm yeah. a gigantic Star Wars fan, so it speaks volume about the quality of Radiator Springs that I put it above Rise of the Resistance. It's the most fun I think I've ever had on a Disney attraction. Ah, you know, I I somebody wrote this exact thing to me mm-hmm. on Twitter. And I responded with, uh, radio Springs racers. You mean West track? <laughs> if you think about it, both you and I didn't mention cars land or for that matter, Pandora. And I think in both of those cases, you can't really separate the attraction from the land. Yeah. For me in, in the case of Pandora, it's the movie as well. Oh, true, true. But it's just, I, I guess in my mind, I was thinking about using the art stick of individual standalone attractions versus, well, you know, it's, it's not almost not fair to mention Cars Land or, or yeah. you know, Pandora because they're so all encompassing. They're, they're, they're so next level that, but again, you know, Paige isn't wrong, or, or excuse me, Pat, that we should imagine these. 
that would probably be number six on my list. The, the mm-hmm. And to your point, it's not just Radiator Springs Racers, which, while it does have elements of test track in it, it is such a mm-hmm. novel implementation of it that Absolutely. it is unique. But the thing I love about that is, and you're right, it's the entire land. Whether yep. it's the, the view you get from Flo's V8 Cafe with its mm-hmm. classic mid-century modern architecture, or mm-hmm. the fact that they just decided to build like what a four or five story backdrop and reproduce a canyon, you know, in mm-hmm. it. I, that's just you know classic uh, Imagineering. Yeah, no, absolutely. Also, uh, Pat had two great stories about riding uh, Soren and seeing mm-hmm. Festival of Lion King in Walt Disney World. After taking some edibles to help with anxiety, I would oh. read those stories on the air, Jim. But I'm writing them into a script for Netflix. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are some stories. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Last question uh, from Paige, who says, uh, "Hello, my fiance and I are looking to book a Disney trip in the next year or so. I'm a lifelong Disney person, and he has never been." <sighs> Maybe she's, is this counseling advice at this point? We'll see. Okay. Um, I qualify for the DAS, the Disability Access Service, and I was wondering mm-hmm. if there's any reason to get Genie Plus if I already have DAS. I assume preferred seating would be a perk, and maybe it'd be easier in terms of planning. Any advice is appreciated. All right. So um, let's actually pose this question to some folks on the mm-hmm. Touring Plans uh, forums and chat. More people don't use both than do use both page. Um, and the main reason for not doing both that they give are this one. Um, I don't want to crisscross the park that much. And then two, it's a lot of time on the phone. So going back to the earlier survey we said about we, we, where we were you know, not using Genie Plus because it takes all your time on the phone is, is definitely a, a thing for Daz as well here. But there are people, Paige, who typically do use both. And their strategy is this. Use Daz on attractions for which the GD plus or individual lightning lane is gone for the day or where the return time is very far ahead of the day. So if you walk into the studios at 10 a.m. and the return time for, um, you know, rise of the resistance is already 7 p.m., you're better off using Daz for that. Right. And then the, the, the flip side of that coin is to use Genie plus on attractions with a much closer return time. And that's how you would use both of them in conjunction with each other. Makes sense. Okay. All right. One last thing. Um, an email from Ken and Jim. This has to go in the I can't even, I have no more evens category. Here's an email from the Walt Disney Company that misspells the words Disney World. And Jim, you see the email there. This is a theme park reservation confirmation email where Disney World is one word with the lowercase w in world. Okay. I, I, how does this get past QA? How? <sighs> well yeah all right then uh, okay all right well there's yeah. that all right jim so yeah. the uh the last thing i want to talk about here and it's uh, sort of extensive is uh universal orlando has been sending out a series of surveys mm-hmm. asking people about pricing options for universal's epic universe theme park and so uh so thanks to jonathan uh for sending in a uh an example of this survey and also danielle because they both got Different, they both got the same survey, but with different prices. And that's what I wanted to go over with you. Oh, okay. All right. So the first question, the setup here is, imagine that you're visiting the Orlando theme parks after Epic Universe, Universal's newest theme park, opens. Mm-hmm. Epic Universe will open in the next few years. What time of year would you be most likely to visit a theme park? And then it gives, you know, around Christmas or New Year's Day, mid-January or early March, spring break or Easter, you know, the basics of the, of the schedule. Okay. The next question is, uh, how many days would you spend visiting the theme parks in that time period? 
Mm-hmm. And so Jonathan here answered five. The next question is, uh, if you're going to spend five days visiting the theme parks that, uh, that month, how many days would you most likely spend at each of these attractions? Give us your best guess. So how many days would you spend at Walt Disney World? Zero days, one day, two days, three days, four days, five days or more. Mm-hmm. Um, and for this particular one, Jonathan put zero. Mm-hmm. Um, how many days would you spend at SeaWorld? The answer was one. And then how many days would you spend at Universal Orlando? Four days. Mm-hmm. Um, and the follow, the, there's a follow-up question on that saying, okay, you've said you, you would spend four days at Universal Orlando. How many days would you spend at each of Universal's parks? So how many days would you spend at IOA? How many days would you spend at Universal Studios Florida? How many days would you spend at Volcano Bay? How many days would you spend at Epic Universe? Mm-hmm. And so for this particular question, Jonathan answered that he would spend no days at Volcano Bay. He's going over Christmas, so that kind of explains why for weather. Um, he'd spend one day at IOA, one day at Universal Studios Florida, and then three or more days at Epic Universe. So I think Jonathan here is definitely the demographic that uh, Universal wants for this kind of survey. Okay. And then the next question, there are 12 screens on this one, mm-hmm. um, but it asks how you feel about different price options. And this is really interesting because of the way the questions are structured. And I'll give you an example, Jim. First question, screen number one of 12 says, if these were the only Universal Orlando Resort tickets available, mm-hmm. which one would you choose? And there are four options. Option number one, the simple one is, I don't like any of them and I wouldn't go to Universal, right? So we'll just ignore that. Okay. If we ignore that, then there's three options per screen. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. So the first option is you can go to Universal Studios, you can go to Islands of Adventure, or you can go to Epic Universe. Mm-hmm. And that's park hopping, right? So access more than one park per day. Mm-hmm. You can throw on an additional visit to Volcano Bay for $70. But your ticket is only good for one afternoon after 4 p.m. Would you pay $120.99 to get into those three parks after 4 o'clock and park hop? All right, that's one option. Okay. The second option on the screen is Universal Studios Florida, Islands of Adventure, Epic Universe, Volcano Bay for $85, mm-hmm. and one full day plus one afternoon after 4 p.m. for $428.99. Right. So if you look at that, right, if you mm-hmm. just subtract the mm-hmm. second option or the first option from the second option, the question is, is would you pay $308? For mm-hmm. one day of park hopping between the three parks. Mm-hmm. That seems like a lot of money. It does. It yeah. does. Mm-hmm. The, um, the third option would be um, five days just at Epic Universe with an additional day at Volcano Bay for $70. But the five days at Epic Universe cost $300. So let's, let's put that in comparison. You could do an afternoon at three parks for 120 call it $121. Mm-hmm. You could do five days at Epic Universe for $300. Mm-hmm. Or for $129 more, <laughs> you mm-hmm. can visit Universal Studios and Islands of Adventure for one additional day. I know we have a few more screens to get through here, but yeah. I, I wonder if the whole notion of, you know, would you visit it in the afternoon? Yeah. Remember, this is the park that's going to be built next to the Orange County Convention Center. And we've already been told that one of the more intriguing features of this park will be the fact that the lands will be designed in such a way off of the hub 
that they can be literally closed off. One land right. will shut For down. Corporate events. Yeah. Yeah. There you, we you were go. the first person to mention this, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And depending on, you know, whether there's one giant convention in town right. or several smallish conventions, but would still want to avail themselves of the opportunity to, to have a line, you know, a, a land open for either yeah. a breakfast event or, or say close it off in the late afternoon for a party in the evening. I think Universal recognizes going into Epic Universe, their pricing is going to have to be that much more dynamic to reflect the, oh, hey, I know you wanted to go into the Universal Monsters land, but that's closing it for today. So uh, yeah. I don't think you should necessarily pay full price, but here, let's go with our sliding scale, so to speak. I definitely think that's it. By the way, the... Um I love the idea that uh, Universal can uh, close off an entire land mm-hmm. from corporate event. I, and I think this is something that we saw hinted at at Volcano Bay, yeah. where yeah. access to certain um, water slides happens through, you know, one of its you know, themed areas. Mm-hmm. And they could do the same thing there. So, uh, you know, you could you could basically buy a slide yeah. for a night. Um, the other thing, the, so two other things I thought were interesting. Um, I previewed this to some of our friends who know Universal better than I do. Uh, mm-hmm. So Joseph Matt uh, was one of them. And he pointed out this afternoon mm-hmm. option might be Universal's attempt to steal an afternoon away from Disney for people who are arriving like midday. Ooh, right? So for $49, clear. and I'm just making up a number here, $49 to go check out a Universal theme park. The day that you show up, people might take that. You yeah. know? Yeah. yeah that's, that's not a that, bad idea at all. The whole notion is going for an incremental approach. But if enough people go for the, the incremental, that could be a significant pile of change. So for any of our listeners who, um, who've who got this survey, if you could send me the screens, mm-hmm. I'd appreciate it. Because I'm compiling a master spreadsheet of all the different pricing options. And uh, uh, one of our listeners, um, Adam, actually mm-hmm. uh, correctly identified that this is something called conjoint analysis where the, uh, he says the objective is to identify exactly which product features matter most to your customers. So Adam pointed out that in his uh, previous life, he did it with food products. So if you're looking about at, at food products and like, you know, one of them is low salt and one of them is mm-hmm. low calorie and one of them is low you know, or, or has expanded flavor, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, non-GMO versus GMO. You can actually test different combinations and different price points of those features to see which things mattered the most to people. Interesting. So here's the interesting thing. If I, uh, I compiled all of the results into it, like I said, into a survey. So um, looking at just the pricing options for Epic Universe among mm-hmm. the surveys that we've seen, the pricing for one afternoon at Epic Universe is varying between $140 and $146, which that's not a huge range. But the more interesting thing for me would be mm-hmm. the price ranges for a five-day ticket, which varies one survey I saw um, was at $300 for five days. Another one was at $355 for the same five days. So another, that's $56 more, right? Yeah. Uh, or $55 more. And then another one was at $610. So $300, $355, and $610 for five days. That yeah. That is quite the range. Wow. And then, okay. And then there are a couple of other uh, interesting ranges too. So for like just Universal Studios Florida, Mm-hmm. The price ranges for five days were five hundred and ninety-two or six hundred and ten dollars. Hmm. If you wanted uh, one day and one afternoon, the price options for all three theme parks, but not Volcano Bay, 
So Universal Studios Florida, Islands of Adventure, and Epic Universe. If you wanted one day and one afternoon where you could uh, hop between the parks, the price options ranged from $205 to $429. I don't know that they could get $429 for one day and one afternoon. No. And this is one of those things where I was thinking, like, are they putting that $429 in just to make everything else look better? That's possible. I get that Epic Universe, everything we've heard is, you know, this is the next level park. Yeah. We were just talking early in the show about lands like Pandora and Cars mm -hmm. Land or, or to a lesser extent Galaxy's Edge. This is supposedly Universal throwing down the gauntlet for what it will do in this very same space. So right. that set of pricing is very confident. It's very aggressive for yeah. what it is. Yeah. 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 People who come into town for conventions, mm -hmm. they typically aren't spending their money. They're spending the company's money. And so yeah. that's what supports all of those overpriced restaurants along iDrive. Yeah, that's true. I wonder if that's also something that Universal is kicking the tires of, that given the proximity to the convention center, that no, we yeah. can get away with ramping up pricing. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why we saw the option these, these new ticket options. So um, there's a there's an option for a one day and a one afternoon ticket. So if you've got a convention from like, you know, Monday through Friday, you might stay Saturday to go to the theme parks. I agree. But, I agree. And, you know, and, and conventions will end, you know, Friday, early on mm -hmm. Friday. So people can, can go home or whatever. So that would give you the afternoon and the one full day. Mm -hmm. But the other interesting option that was in the surveys is just the afternoon tickets. Mm-hmm. And the pricing on these things was all over the place. So like the least expensive afternoon option that I saw was $70 to get into either IOA, Epic Universe, or Volcano Bay. Mm -hmm. $70 for an afternoon. And that's that seems fair, like for after yeah. 4 o'clock. But the most expensive option mm -hmm. was $286, $287 to get into IOA and Volcano Bay with park hopping for an afternoon. Yeah. That's a lot. That's nearly three hundred dollars. Yeah, for an yeah. afternoon. Uh, that seems pricey. Yeah, so seventy to, to two hundred eighty-seven dollars uh, mm -hmm. were the options there. Most of the most of them were in the hundred and twenty to hundred and sixty dollar range with park hopping for afternoon. Mm -hmm. So it'll be very interesting to see where uh, Universal goes from here with this. Love that we have this information this this early out. Yeah, and I'm definitely going to do the um, I'm definitely going to do the analysis to uh, mm -hmm. to see what's uh, what's going on there. Cool. Cool. Like I said, if folks, if you uh, if you get a copy of the survey, please send it in so I can um, update our spreadsheet. Appreciate that. And we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim gives us the history of Disneyland's Love Bug Day, which happened back in 1969. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Jim, we've talked about the yippies Mm -hmm. in Disneyland. We've talked about a lot of historical events that have happened at Disneyland. We have never talked about Mm -hmm. Love Bug Day. And I'm assuming here you are talking about the creatures that that frequent uh, Central Florida in the spring and in the fall. Oh, don't you love scraping those off of your windshield? (laughs) This is different and kind of ties into Walt Disney himself and his take on his company. People have talked in the past about the whole Walt once saying, you can't top pigs with pigs, which people have interpreted as, you know, Walt didn't like sequels. And and that's not true. In Walt's own lifetime, the studio produced at least two sets of sequels, The Absent-Minded Professor in March of 61 and Son of Flubber in January of 63. Likewise, uh, The Adventures of Merlin or Misadventures of Merlin Jones in March of 64. And then its sequel, The Monkey's Uncle, which was released in uh, August of 65. I mean, Walt was an innovator and a storyteller, but at the same time in the 1960s, he was a practical businessman who was on the lookout for additional revenue streams. After all, he had his family. Family Fun Park in in Anaheim that he was expanding. Likewise, during that period, he was funneling money to acquire land for Project Sunshine, the what eventually became Walt Disney World. And so, when Walt detected a pattern, noticed that a certain film the studio did did well, uh, he paid attention to it. So, for example, when Old Yeller came out in December of '57 and and did big business, uh, it's like Walt took note of that. And then when the Shaggy Dog came out in March of '59 and did even bigger business. Walt said, okay, that's a thing. People like Disney-produced movies about dogs. So uh, he turns to his literary acquisition department and tells him, go snatch up the movie rights to a bunch of books about dogs. (laughs) Seriously, Len, over the next five years, we got Nikki the Wild Dog of the North. We got Greyfarer's Bobby. We got Big Red, Savage Sam, The Incredible Journey, and Ugly Dachshund. That's just in one window of time between July of 61 and February of 66. And Walt was really practical about this. So like, look, I can send this out into theaters. And then a year and a half, two years later, I can change these movies into two-part episodes that they show on my TV show on NBC. You know, it all works out. So, you know, with the idea of Walt paying very close attention to what does the business, an absent-minded professor comes out in 61. And, mm-hmm. and Walt takes a step back and it's like, okay, so what does that mean? Does that mean people like Fred McMurray movies or do they like movies where cars fly? And so Walt kind of splits the bet. He does a bunch of movies with Fred McMurray. He does like Bon Voyage, Son of Flubber, Follow Me Boys, and Happiest Millionaire. And given that of those four, three of them underperformed to the box office, it's like, okay, clearly Fred McMurray is not the movie star that I thought he was. On the other hand, Son of Flubber does mm-hmm. business and it has the flying car again. And it's like, okay, let's buy some car stuff. So he has the studio acquire the film rights. To Upton Sinclair's The Gnome Mobile, uh, a novel from 36 that they then turn into a movie, goes out in 67. As soon as you said Upton Sinclair, I'm like, how is the jungle going to be a theme park ride? There we go! <laughs> <laughs> he, 
<laughs> fall into a vat made into sausages. Yeah, you know, this could be a monster. There could be a Monsters Inc. tie-in in there. I think. Ooh. <laughs> Let me, yeah. Let's workshop this. That's not a bad idea. All right. Okay. <laughs> I am not opening that can, Lynn. That can of worms. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Sorry. Had to do it. Had to do it. <laughs> that was beautiful. Anyway. Okay. So so Walt is, tells us I mean, we need car stuff. And so one of the things that comes in over the transom, I mean, it's not a script, it's not a book. It's more of a, a treatment for a film by uh, Gordon Buford. It's called Car Boy Girl. Buford bases it on, you know, he grew up on a farm in, in Colorado. And he talked about how, you know, his parents had this constant battle with the family car. And how sometimes it would start, sometimes it wouldn't start. But it seemed to literally be the whim of the car. And so he, he talked about his mom would sit and tie inside the car and gently try to persuade it, and the father would curse at it. And, and it still, sometimes it would take them into town, and sometimes it wouldn't. And he remembered how his mother, for example, would hold her breath as she put her foot down on the starter as if, oh, if she yeah. was really gentle, the car would start. And so, you know, and Walt reads through all this stuff and sees, okay, a stubborn little car, a mind mm -hmm. of its own. Mm -hmm. It brings a couple together. It's okay, we can maybe do something with this. And everyone relates to it, right? Well, that, that's It's the like thing. the dog, the dog in the yeah. car. Everyone relates to having dogs and having cars. Yeah. yeah. So Walt options this property in 61, same window of time as Absent Minded Professor. But he passes away in December of 66, and Car Boy Girl sits in a slush pile of scripts on Walt's desks as, you know, the, the employees mourn and the company tries to figure out how it goes forward without its founder. But luckily, Walt leaves behind a cadre of loyal creative lieutenants, and among them is Bill Walsh. And Bill is the producer of Disney hits like Shaggy Dog, Absent-Minded Professor, Son of Flubber, and more importantly, the studio's biggest earner to date, Mary Poppins. Mm -hmm. There are so many great stories associated with Bill because he is so matter-of-fact. There's an interview he did, for example, in 1970, where he talked about, look, I make movies for people between the ages of 9 and 14. It's a very intelligent and very honest audience. I don't make movies to make personal statements. I make movies hoping that they'll make money so I can make more movies. Oh, yeah. So that's his attitude going into this. So with this goal in mind, Bill gets the keys to Walt's office in the summer of 67, which, by the way, had been locked the day he died. And, and really? They weren't allowing people in. Oh, and so okay. he sits at Walt's desk. He goes through the slush pile of scripts. He's looking for that film that would appeal to 9 to 14-year-olds, which also would make some money for the mouse. And he finds Boy Girl Car. And he's like, okay, this has broad appeal. I can do something with this. But it now comes down to, okay, so it's a story about a stubborn, small little car. But what car? And so, but Bill, Bill has kind of a genius idea. You know, early one morning, he has a dozen small cars, a couple of Toyotas, a handful of Vovos, an MG, and one pearl white Volkswagen Beetle. And he has them parked outside of the Disney studio commissary. And then he gets himself a cup of coffee and he sits in the patio and watches as the employees come in for the day and they go to get their coffee and their donut. And he wants to see how they interact with the cars. Oh, okay. A lot of the guys, they look at the MG and they, they're checking out, you know, what the features in the Toyotas and, and that sort of thing. But he, what Bill noticed consistently is the one car that people just didn't touch, but they petted. The pet, yeah. Was the Volkswagen. 
and because it, it, it's the most accessible of the cars. I mean, you can, you can, you and I, Jim, can work on a Volkswagen. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we, could, we could fix that car. Yeah. You repair the rubber band, then you go. <laughs> so Bill starts exactly. working on whatever this film is going to be. But the problem okay. is at this point, they're looking for a title. Okay. And at this point, it's called Beetle Bomb. It's called Wonder Beetle. It's called Thunderbug, the Magic Voxy, and the Runaway Wagon. Oof, that's a mouthful. Problem here is that Volkswagen doesn't want to let Disney actually use the real name of the car in their movie. Really? Yeah. I mean, mind you, they came around as soon as it was a hit. Yeah. And this is why when you watch the first uh, Herbie movie, you'll hear it called the small car, the Douglas Special, the compact car, but they never actually call it what it is, which is a Volkswagen bug. Th- do they use the word beetle at all in the first film? No. I mean, that's what's, what's so bizarre. bizarre. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah. But anyway, they start shooting the racing scenes in the fall of 67 and as he casts up the film. And, you know, he's still struggling for a title. It's the summer of 67, which is the summer of love. And so Bill's like, all right, split the difference. It's the love bug. So they shoot shoot the live action scenes in the summer of 68 with the cast, Dean Jones, Michelle Lee, Buddy Hackett, David Tomlinson. And as they begin to assemble the footage, it's like, this is something special. This is something good. This could really be a huge hit for the studio. So the PR team is like, okay, so what do we do to really launch this thing big? This is obviously a summer film. It should be, in fact, you know, the, the, the mm. thinking was that we want this to be in as many theaters as possible in the summer of 69, you know, literally hit the weekend that the drive-ins open. Because it's a car movie, you know, right. people will take their cars to go see the car movie. But at the same time, they feel like, but well, we got to build it before that. So they, they put together this, this idea that they'll actually release the love bug to 50 theaters around the country in March of 69, let the word of mouth build, and then a couple of weeks, later around Memorial Day, just as the the uh, drive-ins open, they'll flood the country with prints. Oh, okay. All right. But in order to have the white hot heat of people need to be aware of this, they realize it would be great to have something in national magazines in that same window of time that are you kind know, of reminding you, keeping the love bug front of mind. Mm-hmm. And so this is when they come up with the idea of the most lovable bug contest. They contact VFW uh, dealerships around the Southern California area, and some money had to have changed hands because they got the addresses for everyone who had purchased a VW in Southern California over the past three years. Privacy schmivacy. There you go. (laughs) Exactly. But it's just the effect of, oh, by the way, you know, if you're not doing anything March 23rd and you want to drive down to Anaheim and put your car in competition for the most lovable bug contest, uh, well, first of all, we'll give you free admission to Disneyland. Uh, Second of all, we'll we'll give you a, a bunch of tickets that you can use when you're in the park that day and oh by the way if you happen to win the contest you get a brand new 1969 volkswagen bug nice they were hoping for 1200 entrants they actually got well over a thousand uh, who turned up it was a very gray morning in in march and in, in 1969 but they competed in four different categories Best personality, most toy-like, most <laughs> comical, and most psychedelic it, it was the 1960s, Len. Most psychedelic. I love it. 
You can go to YouTube right now, and if you plug in Love Bug Days, you can watch a 12-minute long professionally shot film that shows you the parking lot the ex parking lot at Disneyland filled with these cars. And oh my god, you're right. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> these cars are hysterical. Oh, yeah. Well, what gets oh, better is that... The clothes of the people, Jim. That, well, oh. it is such a quintessential late 60s. Don't you just love it when Americans discover drugs? <laughs> God. All right, go Wait, do you see some of these cars? Some, yeah. some of them were well past discovering, Len. <laughs> <laughs> On each of the four each of the four categories for the contest, they picked 25 finalists. And those hundred cars then actually got to parade through Disneyland. They took them in backstage, brought them out onto uh, Town Square, and then rolled them up Main Street around the hub, up Matterhorn Way, and eventually exited the park by uh, to the left of Small World. But what's great is if you watch this this film, you can see footage that they shot from the Skyway of these things driving through the park. And um, in the end, Dean Jones himself, the star of The Love Bug, Presented to Morton and Barbara Allen of Studio City, California. They got their brand new 1969 Volkswagen Bug and hugely successful PR stunt line. Everything that Disney hoped for happened. The event got covered by Time, Life, Look Magazine. TV stations around the country ran footage of this thing. So Herbie opened big and just kept getting bigger. In fact, only Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid sold more tickets in 1969. For a time, wow. it was the, the second top grossing film in Disney studio history. Only Mary Poppins sold more tickets. So, oh, so of course, amazing. company makes a sequel. It released in 1974, Herbie Rides Again, and they do yet another Herbie Day at Disneyland, which this one I'm chasing after Len because they took the footage that they took in this one mm -hmm. and created an hour long TV special that was syndicated. And this would be fascinating to watch because they also used this special to hype the uh, literally had evidently opened weeks beforehand, but America sings uh, the, oh. the bicentennial attraction. I'll bet somewhere on his 500 DVDs, Tony Baxter has footage of this. There we go. By the way, I'm watching this video. Did you see the 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 people in the parade of cars dressed as beetles with with painted shells on their back, like actual <laughs> beetle bugs? Oh no, I missed that. If this happened, if this happened now, Jim, there would be commemorative cupcakes. Hmm. It decorated <laughs> like every single one of these cars. This is amazing. Oh my God, look at the winners. Look at what they're wearing, Jim. <sighs> yeah, yeah. You need protective glasses to look at these clothes. They're, they're <sighs> little, the, the colors do not occur in nature. You have to admit that. This is beautiful. Oh, we have to watch this. Okay, so the yeah. title of the video for everyone, it's called uh, Love Bug Day at Disneyland 1969. It's yep. by a guy named Jim Douglas. Okay. Wow. Of course, when you have two films that do this much business, the original Love Bug and Herbie Rides Again, of course, Imagineering is going to be asked to kick the tires, so to speak, <laughs> of developing a Love Bug-themed attraction. And um, they did. They, there are at least two pieces of concept art that have uh, floated up into the internet. 
One recreates a scene from uh, Herbie Rides Again, where literally Herbie is driving up a support cable for the Golden Gate and, and sort of crests the top of that bridge. The other one, and, and this is the thing that was going to be the big finale of the attraction, Len, and I don't know if you remember the original Love Bug movie where Herbie, in the final race, basically falls apart. He splits in half, so he... He ends up coming in first and third in the race. <laughs> so this is what the attraction was going to do. As you were coming up to the finish line, they'd, before people riding in the Herbie-shaped ride vehicle, it would split in half, and then the front of the car would race the back of the car and see who would get the checkered flag. I'm, I'm thinking, Jim, if we, if we do a Radiator Springs holiday layover mm-hmm. with Herbie, it would vault into my top five if that wow. happened. If you know, if 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 the if the the car would have to split in half and then finish first second first and third with the other car coming in second that could be cool. All right. Uh, interesting thing is that Imagineers take this idea to Disney management, and they're like, "It's cute. It's not. Let's spend thirty million dollars to build it. Cute, but it's cute." By the way, Herbie would eventually make it into a Disney theme park, though. I'm sure you, Len, remember yep. when you went on the backstage tram tour and. Yep. Came to actually, this was Ernest's friend Vern's house on Residential Street. Uh, Herbie was parked in the driveway there, and he would rear up and he'd flap his doors and he'd open his hood and he his back tires would spin and create smoke and windshield wipers would spray water on people who were riding the tram. But it did it for every tram that went by until the day the electrical motors that powered the thing burst into flames. And, you know, a bunch of tourists got some very interesting photos to take home of, you know, Herbie still doing all of his hood opening and, you know, and doors flapping. Only he's on fire, so it looks like he's in agony, like, oh, God, help me! (laughs) So Wasn't wasn't there a remake of the film with... um uh, Lindsay Lohan. Lindsay yes. Lohan. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, it came out in 2005. Uh, yeah, they did try to reboot it after they did three sequels. There was a TV series in 1982. There was a a TV movie in 1997 with Bruce Campbell. So, I mean, it's not for lack of trying. But these days, if you're looking for Herbie, you really, uh, you know, the, particularly Walt Disney World, the place you have to go is the all-star movies where between – yeah, building six and seven. They have that oversized Hervey sort of bisexing the building. But but yeah, honestly, folks, if you, you want an entertaining piece of video, as Glenn was just mentioning, go seek out the, oh. this Love Bug Days video. And it, what a snapshot of what it was like to go to wow. Disneyland. That's one, of my, that's one of the best videos I've seen in a long time. That's fantastic. Yeah, 12 minutes long. 12 minutes of absolute classic ni- late 1960s fashion. It's incredible. There, you go. Uh, there we go. Uh, great job, Jim. This is a uh, yeah. You were on today, man. This was great. Uh, <laughs> I'm here all week, folks. Tip your waitresses. Okay, try the feel. There we go. All right, folks. That's going to do it for the Disney Dish Show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. We will find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's show, we're going to talk all about the Reedy Creek Improvement District, where it came from, and where it's going. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who is entering his prize-winning bacon, beef, and veal East Texas Chili in the East Texas Gusher Days Chili Cook-Off on Saturday, April 16th, 2022, at the corner of Commerce and Main, starting at 1 p.m. in beautiful downtown Gladewater, Texas. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. 
For Jim, this is Lynn. We will see you on the next show.